Are you ready to create and grow the impactful and profitable business you've been dreaming of? It's all possible. A bigger audience, more impact, and a new revenue stream. We'll show you how. I'm Jenny Barcelos. And I'm Sandy Connery. And this is the Soulful MBA Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 40 of the Soulful MBA Podcast. Today's episode is called Ruckus, one of our very favorite words. I'm Jenny Barcelos, and I'm joined with my co-host, Sandy Connery. Hey, Sandy. Hi, Jenny. Ready to make a ruckus, I am. Yeah, this whole episode is a little bit of an homage to Seth Godin without actually (laughs) referencing him him in the rest of the episode itself, because that is a word that he has made famous as well. But yeah, we are ready to make a ruckus. We want to talk all about ruckus making and the ways in which being an entrepreneur allows you to create a ruckus out in the world. So let's have at it. Sandy, what do you think of when you think of the word ruckus? Uh, I think of people who are doing it their own way, who are standing up for what they believe, um, that the drive to create something is bigger than anything else, more than money or power. Um, I think people are, I think it's like a really deep belief of what they're doing. Those are the people that are making a ruckus, that don't listen to Mm -hmm. those outside voices that are trying to take them down and say that they can't. So when I think about making a ruckus, I think that's absolutely what we are doing and what we're attempting to do. And I, I think, you think that's of my stream. You think I ruckus, do think of Namastream. Namastream. But let me just say something. I have shy my natural tendency is to make a ruckus. Like I am a cultural critic. I'm really good at saying what's wrong in the world, which has its drawbacks and its benefits, right? It makes me, I think, an innovator, but it makes me like a little bit unhappy most of the time. So when when you want to think about growing a business or becoming an entrepreneur, creating a startup, whatever your brand of business is, I think that for many of us, like the primary motivator is not just money because it's really hard. And money alone, again, is we've said this a lot of times, is not really enough of a driver to cause you to take this kind of action, right? Like if you want to make a lot of money, go work for somebody in a job that pays you a lot of money. That would be a million times easier than doing what all of us have chosen to do with our lives. So there's something else, right, driving you. And I think for many of us, it's not just making a ruckus for the sake of making a ruckus, right? It's not just doing something to create change. It's because you feel compelled by a certain group of people or a certain it, like inaccuracy in the market or a problem that you see that you want to solve. And by definition, even if you're just trying to make something better, like a, a version, like you're trying to make the best watch that's ever been made, to me, that's also making a ruckus because you're trying to do something in a new way. You're sort of breaking the mold of what others have done before. So ruckus making is essentially the same thing in my mind as innovation. And it's just sort of with a little bit of a political bent to it. But I love it. I love everything about this word and this concept. Yeah, it, it's way better than innovation. Ruckus. Let's make a ruckus. I love it. It's like getting yeah. in trouble a little bit. <laughs> it is kind of like getting in trouble. And so this article, this uh, podcast was inspired quite a bit by an article that we read, both of us read independently and talked mm-hmm. about with each other, which was rather exciting in The New Yorker. And it was a few weeks old and it was called The Content of No Content. And it's really interesting. It's by Elizabeth Colbert. It's go- it's going to be the hustle for today's episode, which we'll, of course, mention again and link to in the show notes. But it's this entire article about 
the fact that the internet and all of these early tech companies were intending to create a level playing field, to create more equality, more openness, um, more resources for the people who live on the planet. And yet what has happened over the past couple of decades is that these big monopolies have been created. So you have Amazon and Facebook and Google, and they essentially rule the world at this point, and how they've strayed away from what their seeming initial intent was. And monopolies are now taking over Silicon Valley. They're taking over the government. They're taking over a lot of power. And for many of us, we don't really acknowledge, I think, most of the time how powerful these entities are. So we want to talk about growth and how to grow a business in a way that it doesn't get away from you. Like, how can you still care about building something sustainable and profitable and maybe even big, but in a way that is still staying true to your initial intention. Like, so if your intention is to create something that disrupts a market, but you end up domineering over a market and preventing others from disrupting it, are you really serving your core purpose, right? Yeah, I think um, I just want to emphasize an earlier point that you just made that I think uh, we don't realize the influence that these three or four, if you want to include Apple, um, the influence that they have on our lives to be how we vote and our politics and our shopping decisions and our where we live. And every decision we make is right now is is heavily influenced by what comes across our newsfeed. And the intent was not that. It wasn't to, um, the internet was not supposed to you know, I think Jenny, you had said it early, make silos of things. It was supposed to be open and we could have everything at our disposal. We could decide and choose what we want. And that's the exact opposite, in fact, has happened. I mean, there's lots of amazing things that the internet has offered us or has given us the opportunity to build businesses and, and create freedom like we've never had before. But there's sort of this dark side that we want all of you to be aware of as you are living your life and building your businesses and um, that, you know, that there's a huge influencers. And I love the story in Jenny in the article about that young there were, I forget where he lived, but it was a young man that was tr during the U S elections. And I know you don't want to talk about politics, but just the, the, the point is that he was like, had some site up and he had some, you know, really complimentary, um, articles or, or content around Hillary and it wasn't going anywhere. There was getting no visits. So he switched to Donald Trump and it would just exploded for him. Mm -hmm. Like, like that's, who's deciding what we see. Yeah, no, I mean, so this just harkens back to the idea of the filter bubble. And so we've we've floated this concept around in previous podcast episodes. If you are not aware of the concept of the filter bubble, you can Google it. Eli Pariser wrote a book about it like five plus years ago, and he has a TED talk about it. And it's essentially this idea that the information that any of us sees in this day and age is so siloed because of the algorithms that are used by these tech companies that you're seeing the content that they think you want to see, right? Like they're trying to serve you and yet you're it's a it, hundred years ago or 50 years ago or 25 years ago everyone was reading the same newspapers and watching the same news programs and so we all sort of had access to the same information about the news at least in current events and then we could make our our decisions and form our opinions around this common set of information and now we exist in a world where what we see to buy learn 
you know, eat everything that, that is presented to us essentially on a screen has been dictated by some algorithm, some machine learning, some tool that some, some group of people invented to try to feed us what they think we want. And um, in lots of ways, that's really convenient. Like I, I, I mean, it's kind of nice. Like I'm looking at light fixtures at Pottery Barn and then I open up a blog and I see the exact light fixture in the sidebar because I put it in a shopping cart and never bought it, right? Like that's what happens. It's also what happens in your newsfeed and Facebook. It's what happens. Even like the Google search algorithm is showing you different search rankings for the same keywords that it shows me. And so, I, I mean, you just got to recognize, I think that many of us are aware that this filter bubble exists, but um, it's, you know, it's worth thinking about and contemplating and, and trying to understand to what extent is the information that you are presented as a thinker and as a citizen being influenced by a robot somewhere like and how accurate is that information is that really what you want to be seeing so so that's just meant to say that these companies have a lot of power um one of the stats that elizabeth elizabeth colbert points to in this article is that 30 years ago almost no one used the internet for anything and today we just about use it all for everything and uh facebook is controlling 80% of mobile and social traffic. Google controls nearly 90% of search advertising and Amazon controls 75% of ebook sales. So we have these like big monopolistic conglomerate tech companies controlling everything we do and see and have the ability to absorb as thinkers. Um, and so this is troubling, right? And so the what is the antidote? Well, this is what we wanted to talk about in the podcast. The antidote to all of this is like the artisan. The antidote is this movement that we're also witnessing happen in our culture, which is this art, this idea that we're all attracted to, I think, and drawn to these very visceral, physical, tactile, small, offline kinds of businesses like we're really interested in artisanal cheese and artisanal bread we're really interested in local goods and locally made goods we're we're like incredibly drawn to that I think because it serves as a counterweight and a counterbalance to this intensified digital experience that we have that's centralized so that's I mean that's the core and and so what does this mean for us right for our company and for your companies your businesses I think that the lesson here is to be aware of the forces that are shaping the way companies develop I mean this is especially true for tech companies or anyone who has any kind of funding right when you are told over and over again grow 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 you have a tendency to lose sight of the initial reason you created your your business or your product and you also have a very strong pull to stop listening to the people that you're serving to your customer base to your community because it's sort of growth for growth's sake because of these larger social and economic forces yeah and that was our experience with the accelerator and one of the reasons that we stopped stepped away from any kind of funding because I remember at, at one point and it was I think it was towards the end or maybe right after it was like it hit me that all these conversations that you had with investors and you know all these advisors and mentors that there was so little conversation about the reason why we created Namastream and 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 we're trying to get this you know off the ground and growing and and in the hands of more people nobody talked about 
the teachers whose lives these would, this would be impacted. Nobody talked about the reason that we built this. And I remember thinking like, you know, what was that, four, three, four months, Jenny? And we hardly talked about the users and the um, the impact and, you know, legacy. And it was only about the dollars and the cents and the growth. And like you said, growth for strictly growth, cent, the, the, the sense of growth. And, and what, when am I going to get my money out? Like how long do you reach yeah, these goals? It, well, it wasn't even about money. I mean, that was the ironic thing, right? Is that when you're in the startup world, and this is different for other kinds of businesses, but in the startup world, we've talked about this, but making money in the short term is not considered as valuable as as getting users on your platform. And there's this this sense that you can monetize later, like Twitter, monetize later. Twitter is not profitable. Twitter is like a joke for, from a business standpoint, right? It's it's a super success story from a startup standpoint, and it's a, it's a horrible failure from a business perspective because there was this idea like, let's get everybody in the whole world on Twitter, and then we'll figure out how to make money later. And guess what? Like, maybe you never figure out how to make money. And so for me, I, I think the criticism is less about like focusing on money. I, I don't think the people listening to our podcast or us or even just about any startup has the mistake that they're so focused on making money. I think the problem is that we're focused on growth, 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 and dominating a market and establishing your digital footprint. Like these are the phrases. And that I think is misguided. I I think for the most part, what many of us are creating and what many of us want to be creating is a product, program, service, business that's serving a particular group of people very well. And that has nothing to do with digital footprint. Like, you know, we, we've had this conversation before with our clients. We've had this conversation on webinar, Sandy, like, you know, figure out what your revenue goal is and then work backwards on how to get there. And I, I, I'm, I'm guaranteed just about any of you who are trying to reach some sort of revenue goal, whether it's a six-figure goal, a five-figure goal, a seven-figure goal, if you do the math, like the number of people you actually need to reach a revenue goal is not that many. Like you don't need to be known by everyone. And Seth Godin talks about this in terms of famous in the family. He said, your goal is not to be famous. No, like that's not necessarily a good goal to have. Like that's, <laughs> to me, like I, I internalize that. I think about what Seth says and like, do I wanna be famous? Do I want to have people recognize me when I'm on an airplane? No, absolutely not. That is a nightmare to me. <laughs> like, could you imagine being, a celebrity like that like the pressure and the the sort of fact that everyone's always watching everything you do no nobody wants that like almost nobody if you're a narcissist maybe you want that but like the rest of us we don't want that right so what you want is to be famous in the family you want to be famous to a small group of people that are going to respect you buy what you sell listen to what you say when we talked about you know this is a conversation about a thousand true fans this is kevin kelly's conversation like the, this is where you want to get to you don't need to have everybody and so so this is where the breakdown happens when we're talking about making a ruckus you want to go like start a business you want to create innovation you want to do something that's never been done before right so that means you're going to shake something up in some small corner of a market somewhere that's awesome. That's doable. That's genius, right? That's like that's something to strive for. Now the the breakdown happens when somehow that initial beautiful goal that you have gets twisted by the market, by the internet, by misguided business coaches, by investors into thinking that you need to somehow like 
own a market. Like most of us should not own a market. That's that like we don't need more giant companies telling folks what to do or deciding what gets built or what gets made or how it gets distributed. What we want is for you to create something meaningful to a small enough group of people that serves you and your team well. And you can make a great living and you can build a legacy, right? And you have something that people are willing to pay for. And that is not how most people would define ruckus, but that's what we're saying is a ruckus. It is right? a ruckus. That's where innovation happens. Innovation happens with like that local farmer doing something differently. I, you know, like it's really interesting to think back to the the roots and the history of the local food movement and how that came about in the farms and restaurants, like the farm to table movement that's taken place in North America. It's fascinating to think about that. Like that didn't happen from some top down structured planned event right that that yeah whole foods whole didn't foods plan, didn't that, plan one. that which is now amazon like it that was mm-hmm. a like a local farmer and chef in new york right in upstate new york that did that and that's sort of the the i wish i could think of his name and i can't right now but that's the genesis of that entire movement and it's both an economic movement and a social movement And I think that is where the magic happens, right? And so how can you create something that is so beautiful and meaningful to you and to a small group of people that you serve that you can build a stellar business out of it and you can build a stellar life for yourself around that business by serving people well and doing good work? And this is like, just imagine the world we could create if all of us took that on. Yeah. Right? Like what a right. different place this would be. What a beautiful a be- world Well, this some would of be. us are taking it on, right? I mean, I think that's where this, that's what mm-hmm. this podcast is about. That's what this conversation is about. I think, I, I guess what I would love is for more folks to start to see themselves as ruckus makers. Like you having a business is a very political act. Like you, like putting a stake in the ground and saying, I'm starting something. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to build this thing that never existed before. That is inherently political. Like you've just decided to create a ruckus. And I I don't think there's any other way about it. If you didn't want to create a ruckus, if you wanted to sort of stay small or play small, you would be working for someone else. Like that, that's the fact of it. You wouldn't have made the choice to take on entrepreneurship. So now that you've Now that you can see yourself as an innovator and as a ruckus maker, you get to start to sketch out what that means to you, what that looks like, you know, what is your legacy around that? We're going to have a whole other podcast on this topic called longevity that's coming out, but like start to think about the role that you play as this entrepreneur in the, in the world and in the economy. And again, I think it's a very political act. This podcast is brought to you by the Namastream software platform. Namastream is a tool designed to help you teach, train, and coach from anywhere on the planet. If you're a wellness professional looking to take your business to the next level, you can learn more at namastream.com. And then there's the other side of the equation, too. It's not just you creating your own little ruckus in your world, but also choosing to do business with companies who are you know, not Amazon and not yeah. all these other big giant monopoly companies, right? So it's it's also interesting to think of where in your life can you make decisions that will support these companies doing this kind yeah, of work? Yeah, no, it's, 
yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing is we're trying to build a company in a different way, right? So we've talked about this before. We're not the cheapest game in town. Like that's because we don't lose money on every customer that we acquire because we don't have a bunch of money coming in from investors to sort of get users on the platform. That's not our goal. Our goal is to serve a group of people, serve them really well, and we charge a fair living price, living wage-based price for what we provide. And we also give the kind of customer service that you can't expect from a startup that's charging half as much or 90% as much, not even half as much. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think that that is, you know, that's, those are the decisions that we've made in terms of, of creating and shaping our company so far. And, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's a little bit rare for a startup or a tech company to operate like that, but it, we're increasingly used to seeing this in all other sectors, right? We're seeing like local economy, focused media all the time. We're seeing Etsy. We're like, we're exposed to these handmade marketplaces. We're exposed to local food, local artisans, lo local woodworkers. Like we're, I, at least I am. I mean, maybe I'm sheltered. Some folks may not be around this, but, but I've lived in a bunch of different places. And I think everywhere I've ever lived, I've seen the, this exposure to these local goods and services. And we all love to support that, right? Like buy local. Um, because you're keeping the money in a local economy, you're helping people support their families. Like there's a lot to be good, you know, there's a lot there to to be glad about. So another really interesting thing that Elizabeth Colbert talks about in this article is about how the internet was supposed to be a boon for artists and for artisans. And the way, and you know, we just mentioned Etsy. So there are certain marketplaces and there are there's certain exposure that comes from being online. I know a lot of artists are really doing well on Pinterest, but there's something that hasn't worked. So um, she says it was the internet was supposed to eliminate the gatekeepers, the big studios and record companies that decide which movies and music get widespread distribution. But Silicon Valley was supposed to be a liberating force, the disruptive agent that shatters the grip of the sclerotic self-perpetuating mediocrity that constitutes the American elite. And so there was this sense that we talked about and referenced earlier that the, t the tech industry was supposed to create this amazing tool that was going to allow those of us who want to make a ruckus and want to make our art and want to be creative, want to create something and put it out in the world. The internet was supposed to enable us to put it out there without gatekeepers. But the problem has been that the, that these tech companies that started out as these disruptive, ruckus-making forces ended up turning into the exact thing that they were trying to disrupt. And and so, I mean, this is like his, history repeating itself. I think every, you know, every big company that is a success story that we've heard of, all they all started out as some family business or some small operation that was designed to make something better, right? And then they turned into something with that was a lot uglier. And um, part of that's because regulation didn't exist to prevent that from happening. And part of it is just because economic, the way our economic structure is, has been created, it, it perpetuates the, the growth for growth's sake. I mean, that, that is essentially, <laughs> that's the way our economy works. So what do we do? Like, wh what do we do? So we support artisans. We support small businesses. We support folks who have an explicitly political angle about what they're building and why. So for us and our company, we want to disrupt the wellness industry because we don't want health and wellness to be managed and distributed by a few small companies that get to decide what gets created, what gets distributed, 
who gets to buy it at what price point and who has access, right? So we believe that the healers, sort of the wellness experts themselves should have access to the same tools that the bigger companies have access to. So, so to me, that's very political. I don't want to not be able to work with a certain yoga teacher or a certain wellness coach, certain nutritionist or a naturopath because they're not in my local community. And I also don't want to have to only work with the healthcare providers that my health insurance says are permitted, right? Because those are often not the people I want to have serving my body. <laughs> and, and they don't necessarily have the same beliefs around wellness that I have, right? So we're creating a platform or we've created a platform that allows the kinds of people to operate on it that we actually want to be served by. <laughs> and so like for us, it's a very self-serving business. Like I benefit from it on the user side, but I also see the market opportunity for this. And um, I don't know. I mean, that's our that's our angle. And so to me, like that is all about making a ruckus, Sandy. I bet that there are some a few people out there listening going, Oh my God, I never thought of it yeah, like that. I'm sure there are because we don't talk about it a lot because it's a little bit political. <laughs> but you know what? Yeah. The podcast and, is where the politics mm -hmm. gets to come out. We are we are liberating ourselves. <laughs> the summer has been about liberation. So we're going to just put it all out there. No, I love it. I love it all. All right. You ready for a joy and hustle? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the joy, why don't you start with your joy? We're going to each talk about a joy because they're both artisanal yeah. lovely delicacies that we want everyone to support. Sure. So the first joy is uh, Tartine Bakery in San Francisco, uh, owned by Chad Robert Robertson and his wife. And um, we chose this one because it's just such a great example of, of, you know, a true artist and craftsman who fell in love with the art of, of bread making when he was in um, uh, cooking school in New York and learned from a great master at a Quebec and then uh, opened his own uh, shop in San Francisco and was so in love with the process. Like he actually, so he was known for his sourdough, his bread, and he actually took his starter, his sourdough starter, like home at night. He took it to the movies. Like it was so important to him until some, uh, one of the cleaning staff threw it out one day and then he realized that he could actually recreate it and then he's kind of backed off on it. But to me, it just, the story is, is fabulous. I actually learned about it from um, the book Cooked um, by Michael Pollan. And it just, I just love that someone, you know, is doing this because it's, his heart is just so called to be the best baker and bread maker that he can be. So to support, I mean, we all can't go to San Francisco for his bread, but, you know, look in your own community to see your, find your own Chad Robertson and support them and make that ec extra effort to, um, you know, go and buy quality and, you know, people who are doing it for these beautiful craftsman reasons. So the hustle is this Elizabeth Colbert article. And again, it is in the... Uh, August 28th version of The New Yorker from 2017, and it's called The Content of No Content. Is tech too powerful? So we'll link to that in the show notes. It's a great short article, which is nice from The New Yorker to see a short article. And I think it has a really lovely ending, which I'm going to spoil for you now, where it, it talks about like, 
you know, the whole, so, so what do you do with these tech giants now controlling our economy and like, how do you get around it? Right. You buy artisanal stuff and they're using artisanal cheese in this article as the example. And so then the fear now is because Amazon bought Whole Foods that Amazon's going to take to now delivering artisanal cheese to your door with drones. So I think that that is probably not <laughs> that far off. <laughs> it's not that's yeah. not actually even that far off but anyway it's a great read have have a look at it and go make a ruckus all right thank you everyone for listening and if you are uh, liking what we're doing on the podcast we'd love to hear from you come join our, our facebook group soulful mba uh, we're having lots of conversation about the podcast there and if you have time leave us a review and a rating on itunes at soulful.mba slash itunes thanks everyone we'll see you next week Soulful MBA is not just the name of our podcast. It's also the name of our premium business course and community. If you are a wellness entrepreneur who dreams of growing your business online, but you're not clear on your next steps and you wish you had someone to guide you, then we've got something for you. Get Soulful MBA's first syllabus and three free video lessons by heading over to soulful.mba sample. Soulful.